Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Dead TV Podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the canceled TV shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre. I am your host, Dr. Chris. And I'm Mr. Seneca. To life immortal, Mr. Seneca. To life immortal! Um, we are... Dr. Chris is not really feeling very well today, so we're going to take it slow tonight. Yeah, a little bit. Try to as much as we can. We're going to be doing the two episodes as we normally do. It's funny that these two episodes take place in November. We're almost like in sync with the month in the year that the episodes aired. You know what I'm saying? It's it's funny. Almost. We're starting to get a little out of out of uh, tune here. So, Mr. Seneca has the plot synopsis for us. If anybody who's listening is of the Jewish descent, we are recording this on the 13th. It is the fourth or fifth night of Hanukkah. So, happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Um, and Mr. Seneca has the plot synopsis for the first of two episodes. War of the World, Season 1, Episode 7, The Second Seal, originally aired November 7, 1988. The location of 10,000 stored-away aliens, along with alien technology and weaponry, is discovered in a secret underground vault uh, by the aliens. And the episode opens with Harrison doing yoga with his tongue out, and he says it's the lion pose. I looked this up. This is not how oh, you did. To do okay. It. <sighs> so, what is the lion pose? Dr. I Chris? couldn't even describe it. I'm not a yoga expert. I, I just it's it's definitely not whatever he's doing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Why is he doing it in the lab of all places? I have no idea. Well, remember. You know, Harrison is uh, issues the uh, constrictive standards of being a modern scientist. So he will nap in his lab. He will uh, not think of what he needs to think about for long periods of time and then have small bursts of energy working on the project and, of course, taking credit for other people's stuff. The alien-possessed reporter returns as the crew meets General Masters, who is our kind of guest star of the week um, and the you know newest person to become an alien. I guess nobody they ever meet can't become an alien or get killed, it seems, other than um, Susan from the original movie. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of interesting because the reporter comes and they have a reporting van. So it's a, basically a white van, and... I don't know how many aliens you could stick in that van, but they seem to take over over 15 people on that military base. So if there's one alien per one person and it's not like a virus or whatnot, they have to have as many aliens as people they take over. So, Well, Mr. Sericum, maybe the yeah. aliens are like barrels of monkeys because the aliens are in barrels. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Monkey just keeps coming out. And alien, alien, alien. <laughs> and I wanted to point out, hold on a second. What famous TV show is Greg Morris associated with our special guest of the week? Ooh, which, which, tell us. That would be the original Mission Impossible TV series. He's the third bill in the credits of this show. 
Oh, excellent show. Yes. Brought even more of the life. And by the way, I think that theme song has definitely been, uh, that theme song is perfect, but I think it definitely has been uh, spun to a more modern take on that theme song in most excellent ways in the, what are we up to, six Mission Impossible films with the seventh currently waiting till the pandemic subsides? Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Let me tell you, Tom Cruise, pushing into his 60s, is still doing his crazy own stunts. (laughs) He had blockbuster after blockbuster. Hey, let me tell you, love or hate Tom Cruise as a person, Scientology, and all that other nonsense that he's into, yeah. which is funny considering what 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 what's the plot line of the show that we talk about. <laughs> um, I love those Mission Impossible movies. The first and second one, I don't think are that great anymore. I think they just don't hold up in terms of like scope of plot. But three, four, five, and six, I believe it is. That was the one that Superman was in. The one that he couldn't shave the mustache for. Remember that big debate? Um, oh yeah. Yeah, they yeah. He, he, they weren't allowing him to shave the mustache for Justice League. Um, so they, they do a terrible CGI facial thing on him, but. I absolutely love the films from 3, 4, 5, and 6 because I think they're well-written. I love the fact they brought in uh, Simon Pegg. Uh, Ving Rhames had a much bigger, has a much bigger part in a lot of them. You know what I mean? It's not just Tom mm-hmm. Cruise. A lot of it's his team. You know what I mean? And, and his team helped elevate him. It is still his movie, but I think those movies are fantastic now, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Um, they've all been great, amazingly well-directed, too. Wow. So. In this episode, we also get... Uh, <laughs> what could only be described as a drug. Uh, A crystal glows, which can be a weapon if light is shined through it, but it also drugs up uh, Harrison and Suzanne. Right. By the way, the character, um, the uh, the general played, uh, his name was Barney Collier. He was in every episode of Mission Impossible. Ah, such a good one. Yes. Great actor. Um, We we got all sorts of great little... uh, Little references here. What is Denise? Uh, they look into the. Uh, Den- I think. I think Denise is the. Is she the lieutenant? Our female lieutenant. Uh, lieutenant Burke. Lieutenant. Okay, so Amanda Burke. Yes, played by Lynn Griffin, and I absolutely love her passcode. What is her passcode? Yappa dappa do. Yep, as made famous by Fred Flintstone, which the Flintstones apparently are um, coming back in some way. But Lynn Griffin, uh, she was in the original, of course, we're recording this at the time, Black Christmas. She played Claire Harrison. And and most recently, uh, she was in The Boys as Lois in the episode We Gotta Go Now. (laughs) Hmm. And she's in a movie called Spider Mama. Short film coming out next year, I suppose. Yeah, that's kind of weird. She's, a, she's just a really cute actress. You know, she plays this kind of mousy, subdued character, and she's just adorable. I loved her in this. She was also in Nody, Anything Can Happen on Christmas. She was in uh, another Christmas movie. Oh, she was uh, Santa Baby in Santa Baby 2. She was Mrs. Claus. Nice. Which is kind of funny when you think about it, but yeah, she was one of the original uh, girls in uh, Black Christmas, which I highly recommend watching if you've never seen that slasher movie. Uh, the man who directed Black Christmas bought, um, would go on to direct the Christmas Story. Lieutenant Burke actually has a crush, a huge crush, on Lieutenant Hamill, who's played by Michael McKeever. 
I thought and maybe she was like putting the eyes towards uh, Ironside, but no, you're right. No, she really liked Lieutenant Hamill, and so she, you know, asked him to go out and etc. And no matter how attractive this guy was, he doesn't have a very long IMDb list. Uh, the last thing that he was he was in was in 2010, something called Lost Everything, and Rin Tin Tin, Canine Cops, TV series, Trial and Error, TV movie, this, uh, Night Heat for one episode. Yeah, very, very small IMDb credits. The uh, two main characters dig through boxes in the basement 372 feet down, apparently. And uh, through uh, a bunch of red tape, they're not allowed to visit every single room, but they find 35-year-old alien tissue samples. But what the aliens want is apparently there is location to thousands of other aliens that have been put into like hibernation, as well, probably as well as alien technology, that General Masters yeah. and the rest of the aliens uh, want uh, to get possession of. They're looking for those 10,000 soldiers and all the technology and the information. And they were actually very successful at finding that list. However, uh, our two heroes, drugged up as they were on crystal energy, uh, <laughs> they uh, managed to get the list of uh, locations away from one of the aliens. They act like complete assholes when they get drugged up, but <laughs> especially Harrison. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah he does. Like, he, he's a complete and utter male chauvinist son of a bitch, and he's not ever that kind of person. He's very, he might be very rude, but he comes across that way as part of his natural personality, not like General uh, Iron Horse, who's just kind of always a dick, but he he becomes like a completely different person, and Susan becomes like horny as fuck. Oh, she does. She's like, and unbuttoning, I'm sorry, but if you're like normally buttoned to the neck, and you start unbuttoning your shirt, you want sex. You're DTF. <laughs> I'm sorry. Am I wrong on this assumption, Mr. Seneca? I think that was actually uh, stated, you know, making out in front of the crystals, you know, soaking in some of that energy. Um, but she didn't do that. And, in fact, Iron Horse should have been tipped off from the fact that Harrison called him up and asked him to bring a pepperoni pizza with him uh, when he comes back to the complex. And in fact, since Harrison is a ve pure vegetarian, complains and is, you know, as, as complaining as, as a vegan. Um, and so this should have tipped him off that something was seriously wrong. But he got the pizza anyway and brought it to the facility. Mm, now I want pizza more than anything else. <laughs> are you very high? Are you very influenced by uh, food commercials? I wish I was high right now. I'd probably help the pain I'm in. But the last time I got high, I, I took it with amoxicillin by mistake and, and let me tell you. Yeah, don't mix weed with amoxicillin. Know your drugs, know your doses. That's the secret to everything. Um, what is the call sign that the aliens try to use? Sorry, not call sign. What's the password the aliens try to use to get into the facility, and do you know where it's from? Oh, I didn't write that one down. Uh, go Wolverine. Uh, go Wolverine? From the movie Red Dawn. Oh. Yeah. Have you ever seen Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze? I did a long time ago. <laughs> yep. Did you ever see the remake with Chris Helmsworth? I have not, no. Okay. So in the original, it's the Russians come to America, right? Uh-huh. In the remake in 2012, which, by the way, this movie was made two years prior, but the collapse of MGM Studios shelved it, 
And then they were like, well, what do we do with this remake? I don't know. Do we want to release it? Who knows? Then all of a sudden, like, Chris Helmsworth is in what movie in 2012 alongside five other heroes? Which movie? The Avengers. Ah. And Chris Helmsworth now becomes one of the hottest fucking actors on the planet. So yeah. they released Red Dawn that following uh, Christmas season. <laughs> and this time it's about the North Koreans invading. Okay. Yeah. It's okay, but it doesn't have the appeal as the original did with Patrick Swayze. Uh, mm. But uh, it is funny that like three Chris Helmsworth movies that he was in that were sitting on the shelf awaiting for distribution were rushed into theaters <laughs> when Avengers came out. <laughs> Yeah, I gotta gotta bank that dollar. <laughs> you gotta bank that star, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think it was either him or Chris Evans at the big Disney announcement recently. It was announced that he is gonna play the live action Buzz Lightyear, who is supposedly gonna set up what the toy in the Toy Story movies is actually based on. Nice, I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, they said no. This is not the or, this is not the Buzz Lightyear fictional character within the t- Toy Story universe's origin story. This is going to be about Buzz Lightyear, the actual astronaut in the Disney universe or whatever that the mm-hmm. toy is based on. That's very cool. Yeah, Chris Evans or Helmsworth is going to voice uh, Buzz. So. Very cool. Definitely, all ties into science fiction in some way. Have you ever read? I'm not saying this because you're a woman, but this is a women's magazine, Inscene Magazine. Was that even a real magazine? I do not know. Okay. Uh, Let's look it up. It didn't up. sound like one to me, but there is a lot of women's magazines, and right. I'm not and they really make a up, women's magazine reader. They make up products all the time for um, things within the universe it's set in. It, a lot of people don't know this, but the black and white movie that Macaulay Culkin watches in the Home Alone films was actually made for the Home Alone movies. That movie does not exist. I actually knew that fact. Yes, it's talked about uh, several times, uh, but a lot of people didn't know about it, know that until obviously years later when the internet, you know, you can learn about movies like we're, we're teaching about this show. So I looked up Inscene Magazine. All I could find was Incense Magazine. I'm going to, by the way, point this out. This is about the sticks you burn to hide the fact that you've been smoking weed, not about fucking your mother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Moving on. All right. <laughs> I just so, brought this podcast down to a whole other level. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, so Lieutenant Hamill gets taken over by the aliens, as pretty much everyone in this scene does. And starts to come on to Lieutenant Burke because uh, Lieutenant Hamill's voice command doesn't work. Somehow the computer knows that it's inhabited by a body and the voice is too dissimilar, even though it sounds identical to us, our human ears. Uh, the computer won't allow the passage. So he kind of seduces Lieutenant Burke in a very almost sexually harassing way, but she's kind of into it, so therefore it becomes okay. Um, Is it sexually harassing, though? I mean, in the elevator. She really wanted that guy. Huh? I mean, is it sexual harassment? I mean, she, like, really has wanted that guy, and he's not giving her the time of day until now. Yeah, but coming on so strong after, you know... A, a soft pass on her invite to a concert, you know, that's that, that's a bit much. That, that That's like raising red flags there. Okay, okay, all right. I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. 
So they kiss in the, in the elevator. He ends up taking over her body and then therefore gains all of her knowledge. And uh, uh, That's when the real he, sexual harassment comes in, when he takes over her body. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, you're talking about sexual harassment in the military, and then that happens. You're like, you know, being possessed by an alien is right up there with a vampire biting you. It's all a rape metaphor. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, uh, the former Lieutenant Hamill is now a puddle of white goo, so yes, there's nothing uh, there to... Did we ever learn what they're doing behind the scenes to create that entire effect? And since we can't get anyone on the show with us to talk about it, because everyone apparently in the cast and crew hated the show... Um, <laughs> I, I haven't found any special effects artists that have commented on this online. There's not a lot of information about the War of the Worlds television show. Oh, my God, right? I mean, I, I, we're, we're doing a podcast about it, and I've looked up it myself, and I can't find anything. Which, by the way, when we take a little bit of a break, Mr. Seneca goes over his, her uh, her theme of the week, which will be about the Blues Brothers. No, I'm kidding. It's not no, about the no, Blues Brothers. No, no, it's about the, the life of H.G. Wells. Uh, I will be reading a little bit more about the email that I received from somebody behind the scenes about the terrors of working on War of the Worlds, which is all fact. So if anyone person sent me an email saying, where did you get your source of information from? I don't believe that to be anything true. I'm just like, okay, you believe what you want, but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this came from somebody that's worked on the show. They worked on Friday the 13th as well. So uh, take it as you will. It's the truth. You're just not telling you who said it. So unless Paramount sends me a subpoena, I don't have to. <laughs> and even then, I'm protected by the Constitution as a reporter not to give away my source. So, Wait, am I protected by the Constitution? Uh, is it, I, it might just be uh, FCC law. Oh, right, right, right. So, oh, wait, we're not governed by the FCC. We're on a podcast. We're not doing radio yeah. car. Ah. Well, then that might be different. Yes. So the aliens... Um, find the information they want, and we get to see Ironhide kicking ass. Oh, yeah. He he is taking bullets, but he is still going. He is still on his feet. I think he is trying to make up for what happened in a little film called Predator. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you've seen that movie, you know the fate of the actor in that film as Schwarzenegger and the Asian uh, character, uh, the, the gorilla, the woman, the, you know, the... I don't honestly know what the one and only female character in the movie Predator's uh, role was, other than she is a Asian gorilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, survived the movie. Nobody else did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he kicks ass. He really does because even taking at least three bullet wounds, he's still on his feet, and uh, he ends up attacking and running after the alien that tries to swipe the the tube that contains the list of locations out of their hands at the very end. And he he jumps out of his chair to chase down the alien and shoot him, even though uh, he is severely wounded. Um, they escape. The facility is blown up. But the list has escaped. Where did the list get to? You know... I don't know, because I, I rewound the episode, and I rewatched it to see, okay, where was the last place we saw it, and it was in Harrison's hand, <clears throat> it was in his hand, and he also had the tube in his hand. When he went into the elevator, he did this, like, somersault thing, which could have made something get lost in the shuffle, but nothing 
overtly was lost there. No scene I could detect shows where that that lack of the document, you know, where they dropped it or something. So it it's just one of those yada, 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 they lost the list type of thing. They didn't want to fully explain it. And we're going to see a lot of yada, yada, yada going into the next episode, too. A lot of yada, yada, yada. I like that. And that's pretty <laughs> yeah, much all the notes I have here for this episode of the Dead TV Podcast. I'm going to jump into that email real quick before we take a break. So I think I left it off with saying something about the writer's strike, correct? Yes, Okay. writer's strike. So picking up now, as with all new series, when what was envisioned on the page wasn't being realized as expected, they had to make changes. Sometimes that was scene rewrites, a location that became unavailable at the last minute, or it could have been characters needing adjusting as performances locked into place. What also usually happens on a pilot is what the studio or network has wanted to change all along comes into play, and while Greg and Sam would offset some of their production categories, Greg was forbidden from writing, and the WGA was also pressing, pressuring him not to provide written notes to the writers either. Suddenly, Jeremy was overwhelmed and brought to Deb Nathan, another good writer, as a second story editor. The studio also asked a bunch of Canadian writers to start scripts under pseudonames since the Canadian Union was supporting the WGA writer's strike and not allowing their people to sign new contracts. So very quickly, nobody was very happy with the show. But lots of stuff that nobody was happy with still had to be shot to complete full episodes. By the time the strike ended, there were six, five to six in... And way behind the schedule. I think I actually read that part. Um, at the end of season one, we all thought it would be canceled outright, but instead Paramount replaced Greg and Sam with Frank Mancuso Jr. and John Anderson, who remained execs on Friday the 13th. So their focus probably wasn't as focused as it would have been. They also fired Richard Chavez, who plays General Iron Horse. I believe he'd been the most vocal of the actors on the bad scripts and reshoots, but don't quote me on that. As they reconceived the series, bringing in a trio of lead aliens and Adrian Paul, which also meant lots of retooling second season stories that had been worked in the works. So like season one, season two went into production behind the eight ball. And once again, adjusting the new vision after seeing it on screen led to many rewrite reshoots in overtime that no one was happy with. Somewhere amid all the stress, Jeremy Hole had a heart attack and couldn't continue. Jeremy Hole plays... Oh, he was the replacement showrunner, right? Although I swear he gave me the sh- sign, thumbs up, when the paramedics were reeling him out of the building. So he might not have actually had a real heart attack. He just wanted to get off the show. <laughs> when he wasn't immediately replaced, I got the feeling Paramount was cutting the losses, and like him, Dev was soon dealing with a larger workload than you normally expect. So basically you had writers that were never allowed to complete scripts they were trying to write, directors shooting material they didn't know would work, and editors trying to patch things up, and actors who felt ignored and slight, slighted at every turn. It'd been on a cu- I'd been on a couple of similarly cursed shows. They're hard to get over and often painful to revisit. So in a lot of ways, you just put them somewhere and hope nobody ever brings them up again. That might be why you're, you're dealing with and why nobody wants to come on your podcast. Oh, wow. Nothing to do with us. has everything to do with how shitty everyone was treated on War of the Worlds. That's sad to hear because, you know, every show takes a lot of effort from a lot of people, and it's sad when you produce something that you're not proud of. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to take a quick break for podcast spot for another show that we enjoy listening to, as well as Mr. Zeneca's uh, History of H.G. Wells, and we'll be back with the second episode of the Dead TV Podcast. Do you love what you hear on the podcast? Please go to Buy a Cup of Coffee. The Radio Horror link is in the show notes, or it's on top of the Twitter page. Or you can just go to buymeacupofcoffee.com backslash Radio Horror, and you can help support 
and the other podcasts here on the Radio Power Network. Donations go towards cloud service and new equipment. Thank you. Dorgan Ramen is a restaurant in Ashland, Massachusetts. It serves traditional and authentic Japanese ramen, Thai noodle soups, and the best chicken wings in Metro West. Everything's done in-house from scratch, and they use only the highest quality products from small farms. Co-chef owners, Papanook and Alan McIntosh, combine their culinary skills with traditional Japanese cuisine to create an authentic, amazing flavor in every dish. Located at 1 West Union Street on Ashland, Massachusetts, their phone number is 508 309-3416 or they can be located on Facebook at Dorgan Ramen Ashland and on their website as well www.dorganramen.com Today's focus area is on the author of The War of the Worlds Herbert George Wells otherwise known as H.G. Wells Practically every major science fiction theme, he was the man that thought of it first. He was a very prolific writer. While Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, is known as science fiction's mother, the title of the father of science fiction is a three-way tie between H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, author of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Hugo Gernsback, the publisher of the first science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories. Coming from this unusual conceptual family unit, we have the stories that our modern mythology is based around. The stories that are so timeless that they are retold over and over, updated for the era and the audience. If you're not familiar with H.G. Wells, or you've only heard of him as a steampunk buzzword, by the time we finish the War of the Worlds TV show, you're going to hear a lot about him and his works. So today, allow me to start at the beginning. Childhood. Next episode, I'll go into his scandalous sex life. <laughs> Ooh la la. H.G. <laughs> Wells was born on September 21st, 1866, in Bromley, Kent, England, just outside of London. His mother, Sarah Neal, had met Joseph Wells when they both worked for the Featherstonhow family. She was an upstairs maid and he their gardener. H.G. Wells' father was a restless extrovert, widely read and outspoken. H.G. Wells' mother was quiet and godly, which was a source of their arguments. Joseph loved her dearly, though. When her mother became ill, they both quit to take care of the family, and they became engaged, but were suffering financially. When her parents passed on, first her father, then her mother, all her mother's possessions were seized, and they were given 24 hours to get out of their home, evicted. Under the horrible circumstances, they married right away. Sarah had no preparation, no bridesmaids, no one to see the wedding, and they were married on November 22, 1853. In April 1854, Joe finally had a job that provided a home for them, so they started a family. The couple's first child was a girl named Frances, or Franny as she was called. Then arrived a son, Frank, and then another son, Frederick. Fanny died of an appendicitis at nine years old. After her death, Sarah wanted a child to replace the hole in her heart. As the fourth and last child, H.G. Wells arrived. However, she did have regrets about his arrival. H.G., or Bertie, as he was nicknamed, he just had a completely different temperament, more like his father. Sarah didn't have her mini-me anymore. No matter how hard H.G. Wells tried to get his mother's approval, the grief his mother felt over her lost daughter always won out. I only tell you all of these things because it was from these meager beginnings that H.G. Wells drew inspiration from. The struggle on the edge of poverty is a continuing theme in his works, 
to show the stark contrast to what H.G. Wells envisioned for the world. I'm sure seeing his mother toil in despair at their shop and his father earning money by playing cricket while working full-time colored how he felt about marriage, duty, and employment. H.G. Wells was a rambunctious and active child, but he was also very sickly. He got headaches and vomiting attacks frequently. He was what you would refer to as an indoor kid. At age seven, a playful toss in the air by their landlord's son went horribly wrong. He was accidentally dropped and his leg broke. The splint to set his leg failed and his tibia had to be rebroken and set. For months, he was stuck in bed. This incident is what H.G. Wells credits as his being the turning point in his life. He dived into the world of books. He devoured nonfiction books like they were cookies, figuratively speaking. So when he came of age, he was enrolled at the Thomas Morley Commercial Academy. It was a private school that his older brothers also went to. It was a one-room school with 25 to 35 kids, ages 7 to 15, half of which were boarding students. The headmaster, Thomas Morley, would keep all the kids in line with a cane, beating the children as he desired. If his cane wasn't around when his anger flared, anything close at hand would be his weapon. He also verbally abused them, but would never use actual swear words. The school sounds a lot like the type of school you'd imagine in the Pink Floyd song, We Don't Need No Education. However, H.G. Wells did get an education and excelled. After Joseph Wells broke his femur in a falling accident in 1877, the family lost the income brought in from him being a cricket player. They were poor, but still managed to pay for the children's private school. At 14, H.G. Wells was pushed off into the world. His mother, Sarah, arranged for him to become a draper's apprentice, like both his brothers before him. Problem was, he hated it, and he just wasn't very good at it. Around the same time, his mother's former employer requested her back. As that was the mansion she worked at before the drudgery of being a shopkeeper, she jumped at the chance. When H.G. Wells was inevitably let go from the apprenticeship, he joined his mother at the Featherston Howe Estate in Up Park. He would take a lot of inspiration from that location, too. This is where he found astronomy and had a library at his fingertips. After a couple other failed apprenticeships, a teacher's assistant, a pharmacy assistant, he was sent to Horace Byatt to continue his education. He was only there for a short time when his mother Sarah got him yet another boring drapery apprenticeship. For his mother's sake, he stuck with it, however miserable it made him, and signed a four-year contract. In 1883, almost two years into his apprenticeship, he begged his mother to get him out, even threatening suicide if he remained. Both his parents didn't like him cutting his responsibilities, but H.G. Wells had already explored another option. He went back to Horace Byatt to become his teaching assistant. This was the first job that H.G. Wells got for himself, a foundation for the person he wanted to become. He taught by day and studied by night, drinking textbook after textbook. He passed examinations in human physiology, physiography, magnetism, and electricity with top marks. Mathematics, a close second. From these impressive marks came a blue paper, an invitation to apply for a teacher-in-training scholarship to study at the Normal School of Science in London studying under Thomas Henry Huxley, one of the leading scientific figures in the Victorian era. A dream come true for his thirsty scientific mind. I think I'll cut it there. We'll explore his college life next episode. And we're back with the Dead TV Podcast, second episode of, of the, of the uh, podcast episode. And Mrs. Zeneca has the plot synopsis. War of the Worlds, uh, Season 1, Episode 8. Goliath is my name originally aired November 14th, 1988. The aliens infiltrate a college campus and steal the deadly Y fever virus. 
a toxin that can literally melt the human brain in seconds. A student is possessed by an alien and exposed to the virus, but instead of killing him, he becomes highly unstable, all the while car carrying the only remaining vials of the killer virus. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, and uh, I don't know if we talked about this person yet. Did we talk about George Bloomfield, who directed this episode? Hmm, I do not recall. Uh, he was born in 1930 and died in 2011. He lived in Quebec, Canada, and he also directed The Jane Show, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, but he also directed three episodes of La Femme de Keto, which I absolutely love. That was the USA Network show. But he oh, directed excellent. six episodes of War of the Worlds. Cool. And he directed 29 episodes of a little show by Jim Henson called... Fraggle Rock. <laughs> Down in Fraggle Rock. I don't know all the words. <laughs> uh, all right, Goober. Uh, <laughs> so, right, uh, you do? Okay. <laughs> buy me a cup of coffee, people. You can go to buy me a cup of coffee backslash radio of horror, and Mr. Seneca will send you an MP3 of singing Fraggle Rock theme song. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. I already said it's going to happen, and I okay. am the master and commander right, of this podcast. Now. What? Sorry, go ahead. I'm committed now. <laughs> okay, now you're committed. <laughs> okay, so right off the bat, we're going to get all the jokes out of the way. The the Blues Brothers aliens. Yes. Okay, when I first saw these guys, I wasn't sure whether they were doing Blues Brothers or whether they were ska aficionados or mods. You know, the time frame kind of goes a little muddy there. I thought they were like men in black because they're meeting with the aliens, <laughs> you know, the yes, overlords. That was another possibility. I was but like, they weren't wearing sunglasses at first. I was like, are they, are they the men in black? Uh, did they take over some men in black? I'm sure the men in black must in, must exist here. Uh, Timeline wise, it should, yes. Uh, but that question was easily solved because the next scene, they are walking into a basically a, a hall with everyone that looks exactly identical to them. Based on the music that was playing and the dances that we're do doing, the flips and everything, they are definitely Blues Brothers. They are. And here's some Blues Brothers music for you. And I don't know how much how many video games you've ever played in your lifetime, Mr. Zeneca, but can you name the video game that uses the Peter Gunn theme as their uh, theme song? Ah, oh, dude, don't do this to me. Spy Hunter. Ah. Oh. <laughs> you drive around in a sh in a car that can turn into like a ship and a plane or a boat and just like shoot stuff on the screen. Uh, there were many Spy Hunter video games. In fact, we were supposed to get a Spy Hunter movie starring The Rock at one point. I don't know if that was that's still in production or that's still in the planning stages or if COVID killed it. I'm not 100% certain. But, yeah, Spy Hunter is a very old video game that was released alongside the uh, release of the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1985. I actually had to go and look up the Blues Brothers 1980 film just to make sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that this was a Blues Brothers conference and not just a whole bunch of mods. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that song that's playing in the uh, in the uh, arena there, that is not exactly, but it's very similar to the song that is in the Blues Brothers movie. Towards the end, they're on stage, and they're basically going driving the crowd crazy with their music. 
that is very much what that scene is trying to recreate. The flips, you know, where he got uh, religiously ecstatic. Uh, and so that was recreated in that scene as well. Excellent. Most excellent. Also, Norton is upset. He feels left out of this investigation. Well, the problem is, and again, I haven't been able to find any research if the actor is actually wheelchair-bound or not, but when you stick a character in a wheelchair, it really limits the access that you can give the character when they go on missions like this because he's got to wheel himself around with that motorized command unit wheelchair, which does not move very fast, or you have to have someone push him. And the whole purpose of him doing that is he wants to be independent and self, you know, self-sufficient, like most people in wheelchairs want. They want to be treated like human beings. But when you're on a show with aliens shooting at you like this every five minutes, that's not going to work. Yeah, but he takes it out on Suzanne's daughter. Yeah, he yeah. does. And I know that on the Ghostbusters cartoon series, the Extreme Ghostbusters, there is a handicapped character in a wheelchair, and he's able to keep up with the Ghostbusters. But that's animation. That that you can draw the character to be really fast. Yeah. <laughs> you would literally have to pick Norman up, Norman up out of his wheelchair to get out of a sticky situation that you're being shot at by aliens. Very true. So, and I, I know that they wrote it into the plot line that he feels left out, but at the same time, you wrote yourself into a hole. I like his character. He's a hacker supreme with skills that there's no way possible he could have. Right. And access there's no way possible that he could have. You wrote him into a corner with his disabilities. Uh, I guess it depends on how you wanted to make the show. I mean, we're not going to argue about that because, you know, you could write a, a television show a million different ways. Who plays the jock, who is basically our lead alien? I call him Jock Alien. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our jock is er, is played by Eric Bruce Cotter. Uh, in the show, they call him Jefferson, who goes crazy after getting infected with the Y virus. But um, he was also on um, Glee for a couple seasons as Cooter Menkins. Law and Order, Six Feet Under as Keith's partner. Uh, 24 on the show Providence as Richie. He's been on a lot of things. Uh, Quantum Leap as well. Ooh. And looks like his first one was in 1985 on Amazing Stories. And then he also played a jock on Mr. Belvedere. So he has played a lot of jocks. <laughs> Little typecasting there. A little bit. But you look at him. I mean... He's got a square head, you know? No, no offense, but you look at the guy. He's built like the way he is. And yeah, I'm sure he would like to play Hamlet or something. But you're going to cast him in that kind of role. He could turn it down or he could not eat. So it's like, dude, you're going to get cast based on how you're built. It's not a bad thing. Yeah, and, I, and he's had a, quite a, a long career doing this. Right, so he must love he was, it. Uh, in 2001, he was the muscle on the Hollywood sign, and then he was also known as the... And, uh, by the way, you, did you mention Generation X? I had not yet. Yes. Did you know? Do you, okay, do you know what Generation X is? Part of the X-Men universe. Okay, I don't know specifically the designations between them. Okay, Generation X is a uh, group of kids that are trained outside of the normal X-Men team, so they're not going on missions to go fight Apocalypse. They go on smaller missions and still almost get killed. The uh, team is led by Sean Cassidy, a.k.a. Banshee. He's the guy who screams and flies. Mm -hmm. And uh, the White Queen who is the telepath equivalent to Jean Grey, except for she is a lot uh, naughtier, meaner, bitchier, and dresses a hell of a lot sluttier. 
That's always been the big point of her character. There was a made-for-TV movie in 1996 on a Fox network called Generation X, and it predates the X-Men movie that was in theaters with Hugh Jackman. And it was a disaster. It was supposed to launch a TV series, and it didn't happen. Now that Disney owns it, people, as everyone's hoping that it will get like, released or something like that. But yeah, there was a Generation X movie. He played Sean Cassidy, a.k.a. Banshee. Huh. Oh, and the thing I was looking for was he played a bully-slash-football player in The Wonder Years. Oh, interesting. I did see Leatherheads. I like that movie. It's the origins of football. <laughs> yeah, so this jock becomes our Goliath, uh, which is the name of the episode. So it becomes the Goliath because he is super strong. Right from the get-go when they're getting into the tunnels to play this uh, aliens and asteroids uh, laser tag game, uh, one of the kids tries to lift up you know, the, call, the, the, the lid and... He's struggling with it, and then Jock goes, oh, move aside. And he just, whoop, one move, lifts up the metal lid. So it's shown to the audience that this guy is super strong. So when the alien takes him over, like, this alien just crushes people. Like, doors get blown in. His strength is just ramped up. So he is the Goliath for this episode. Game that they play reminds me very much of a season of Riverdale that they played a game kind of like this, that the game had like high stakes and people took it way too seriously. I do love the fact that um, when Harrison calls out the game, the general says... Oh, a fantasy game player? Is that some kind of swinger or something? <laughs> yeah, I wrote down that quote. <laughs> I was like, well, that's what Mistress Seneca's Alley. <laughs> I know. Can't imagine why. For anyone listening, yes, we've talked about this before. But we're in the middle of the pandemic, so Mr. Zeneca hasn't had a lot of, let's just say, uh, you know, events, using the quotation no, marks, money years, a, to yeah, really I promote. <laughs> yeah, I have not had a single party uh, in, you know, past March of 2020, simply because the pandemic has been in place. And swinger events are just not somewhere that you can go and not yeah. expect to catch, you know, a cold, a virus going around. Right. People not unless in such you, close proximity. Not unless you basically, you all quarantine together, you all got tested, and then then you started your party. But that's just And then like it only takes one asshole to ruin it. So, no, thank you. I'll just, I just will not have events. I'd rather keep everyone safe. Totally. So, this laser tag, though, is pretty interesting because they're fighting uh, mutants and uh, Venusians, so people from, Ven- from Venus. Did you play laser tag? I love laser tag. Yeah, laser tag. It's considered a sport, if you can believe that. <laughs> uh, I love it. it. It includes all the things I really like. Hunting down people, uh, shooting them with lasers, taking them out of the game, winning, <laughs> and, and, and hiding undercover so that I can just, like, peg people off with my laser gun. Um, was created in 1984, so it definitely fits the timeline for the show. Yeah. Uh, we also get to see how the alien takes possession of him. It, like, molds into his skin, but we see the aliens, like, living inside people, like, craying inside his giant robot from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles most of the time. Maybe two of the arms uh, kind of melt into the person. I and thought they only had two arms. arms. And then that third one rises out from the middle. But I thought they only had two arms. No, they've got three. They're tripods. Oh, Okay. Everything is three with the aliens. Right, because they have, like, three eyes. Yeah, they have three eyes. They cluster in three. They have three fingers. They've got three arms. Um, 
from what it looks like, though, they only have two legs, which is weird. Yeah, very strange. Um, is the third arm a metaphor for their penis? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that's actually a carryover from the H.G. Wells War of the World story, oh, where everything right. was uh, basically in threes. Do you remember the Austin Powers movie, uh, Mini Me is able to like stand up on his like tripod of oh, a yeah, penis? His tripod, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that thing's like a tripod. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a baby's arm holding an apple. He just like lays it down, you hear something go thud, and I'm thud. like, God damn. <laughs> I pity the woman on her wedding night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, may he rest in peace. So I wonder what the two college groups of, of kids were playing for. I don't you know. know. I don't even know what this game is other than it was just cheap laser tag for the show. Playing laser tag and a tunnel of systems. Yeah, of all places to do that. Yeah. I didn't think everyone was going to get possessed, you know, but I guess the alien, I guess the Blues Brother aliens took over the D&D LARPing aliens, right? That's yeah, what we're that's getting. what happened. Okay, just make sure. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they took over the the social group that fit their new needs. And so uh, while they killed Suzanne's friend, uh, former lab assistant Robert Parkins, they outright killed him and basically took his body with them so that they wouldn't get caught. Although put it somewhere where someone else saw that the face had been ripped off. Yeah. It was a little muddled on that. That's why I said like this episode has a little bit of yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of details that don't get shown or explained. You know, this this Y virus is infecting the uh, the jock alien, but yet since it's a virus, it should actually be spreading out. Uh, once he becomes infected, that virus would replicate and spread just like the COVID virus to everyone around him, and then people would start dying. But that's not happening, so yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, it's funny, the virus affects the aliens like the way it does. And then, of course, Harrison starts getting involved with the game and, like, feeding into their, you know, stupidity of whatever they're infected by. Yeah, the the Jefferson guy, he's uh, the leader and taking the others reluctantly on this crazy mission. He really seems as if he has mad cow disease. Do you think we could cut the clip from this episode and post it online saying, this is how coronavirus started? (laughs) (laughs) Uh... <laughs> I don't know. I don't think there's a, a, a clip that would properly get that point. Uh, one of the other actresses in this episode is Kelly Rowan. I think this is from this. She plays Kim. She's one of the girls that's in the group. So a very modern role for her, but she would go on to big things. She plays Peter's mother in Hook. She was Kristen Cohen on The O.C., which was a six-year-long TV series. She was in Candyman. She was in... Um, Jack and Jill versus the world, and she was on Castle for an episode. Um, bit part actor with a couple of big hit TV, TV series. Absolutely stunningly beautiful, too, by the way. Yes. Um, uh, another one of those kids is uh, played by Jason Blicker. Jason Blicker? Jason Blicker, yeah. He's uh, one that kind of it wants to guide the jock in a better direction, but is unsuccessful doing so. And he was recently in the Umbrella Academy. Oh. You know, as, as a desk cop, you know, nothing big, but he was there. Yeah, Umbrella Academy is big in the news right now because of the uh, new miniseries and uh, the uh, Ellen Elliott Page 
transformation. Yes. I'm so proud of them. So the only note I have left on this episode, because it's mostly just chasing around underneath... Kind of boring in the end. Uh, ...is that, uh, you know, at the very end, the jock, in order to stop him and the Y-virus, in order to stop him and the Y-virus, they get him inside the lab and then turn on the vacuum to basically vacuum all of the oxygen out of the room, and his head starts to expand, and then it pops. So I did a little bit of research on this, and turns out that humans in a vacuum will actually expand to about twice their normal size uh, because your skin itself is basically expanding to take the expansion of the blood and the, and the, and the cells. Uh, as the oxygen is being basically taken out of them, they expand. And there's one person that has, has actually survived being in a vacuum for about, uh, I think it was like 15 seconds, something like that. And... The sensation that he says is that just before he passed out, he felt the saliva in his mouth boiling. Ew. Yeah, yeah, really nasty. So he felt the saliva in his mouth boiling, and then he passed out. And it took him a while to, re- to recuperate. And so when he gained consciousness, the uh, oxygen level, the atmospheric pressure, was about 15,000 feet up. So at 15,000 feet, he regained consciousness. When he but, expands and explodes, reminds me of the uh, the the one of the three uh, uh, Earth, Fire, Wind, Water villains from Big Trouble, Little Chinatown. Oh yeah, yeah. He ex- he does the same thing. He, I think it's the air guy, right? He's the one who can expand and then blow himself up. He he blew himself up. Also on Total Recall, they had the same type of effect where you know the expansion and and all of that. Uh, you won't actually pop. So if you were out in space in the vacuum there and you were to have an, a puncture in your suit, your body would expand, but you would not explode. You would just slowly asphyxiate and die. I know, I'm such a downer. <laughs> no, it's fine. Uh, that's pretty much all the notes I have. Um, Jock Alien chases him down and then explodes. That's pretty much what I wrote because the last, almost the last 10 minutes of this is Harrison playing the dumb game and nothing really worth talking about. Yeah. So... That's all the notes I have and you have for the Dead TV Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed Mr. Zeneca's chat about H.G. Wells. Hopefully you can find us on Facebook, on our Facebook page. And I'm in a couple of World of the World groups where I post the episodes. And I put up a couple pictures recently of what the original DVD release of World of the Worlds looks like, which is very cool. Uh, the box set that I have, not as cool, but check out the video I posted on Radio of Horror of uh, comparing the two sets and what's, what's in them. So if you want to check that out. Um, and I'd like to thank Dorigan Ramen Noodles. If you're in Nashville, Massachusetts, please stop by and order some fantastic noodles from them. Um, and if you'd like to help the podcast, we would definitely use could use a new, uh, like maybe new headsets or something. Buy me a cup of coffee backslash Radio of Horror. It's not like, it's, it's basically like Patreon, but we're not having to create new content every five minutes because that's really difficult. So buy me a cup of coffee or buy me a slice of pizza, I think is the way I set it up. And you can make a donation of any kind to help the show. Do you have anything coming up that you'd like to promote or plug that you can or is everything completely canceled? Because <laughs> I was listening I, to an old episode and someone emailed me about it and I was just like, oh, that's all canceled, dude, because of the pandemic. And I was just yeah. like, it's been a while since she's plugged anything. So, Well, the... The only thing that I had going on for 2020 was uh, my favorite drive-in, the Mahoning Drive-In. I've plugged it several times. Uh, I will be doing their opening event. So in April, which we hope 
uh, will will be able to open up. Um, I will be doing their season opener, which is always the Wizard of Oz, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the one with Gene Wilder, of course. <laughs> uh, all played on 35 millimeter, and I will be doing the outside decorations. So I'm creating an Emerald City and a gummy bear tree uh, for people to take selfies in front of. So hopefully it'll be a nice socially distanced event and everyone will stay safe and the state will allow us to open. My personal events, uh, (laughs) I don't really think that they're going to open for quite a while because Philadelphia has a pretty high case rate at the moment. So I'm prohibited from doing anything until at least January. But I'm thinking that it won't be until at least June before they'll open it up to nightclubs and bars. So, eh, it's where we are. I'm getting my creative fix from doing things for the Mahoning. And if you're in the Lehigh Valley, uh, Philadelphia areas, you should check them out when we open again. Come to that season opener and see my my creations. And you can find us on our individual Twitters at ChrisDSAV and at ElegantlyTheKinky. I use Twitter a little bit more than Mr. Zeneca. Um, and if you would like to send us a message, you can, thatradioofhorror at gmail.com. I also want to put in a shameless plug for Vlada, A Dracula Tale. It is available on the Facebook page store. You can order a copy. They will get shipped in January with everyone else's copy. And eventually I'll have an Etsy store up with the covers and other swag items that were available for free to people on Kickstarter, but we'll be selling buttons and pins and stuff like that. So thank you, everyone, for supporting Vlada, A Dracula Tale, and we'll be back in a couple weeks. I believe the next episode airs... Hold on, let me just just take a look at this book. So the next episode actually will be out, hopefully, on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. So uh, a happy New Year to uh, you when we do the next episode. (laughs) Good night. Good night.